Welcome to the Therapist Survival Guide. My name is Miranda Barker. I'm a licensed clinical social worker, and I'm here with Dr. Lucas Molini, LMFT. Hello. I got it in there before you said hello. (laughs) (laughs) Today, we are talking to one of our amazing franchisees, Cerrone. Do you want to go ahead and introduce yourself? Tell us a little bit about yourself. Oh, sure. Uh, Thanks for having me, Miranda Lucas. Um, I'm Saroni Kundu. Uh, I am a franchise owner of Elemental Health in uh, Concord, Missouri. Uh, I own one location, uh, working on more, (laughs) working on expansion. Um, I opened in April of uh, this year, actually. Um, And uh, yeah, so far it's been uh, it's been great. It's been a great journey. <laughs> Amazing journey, actually. We're so happy to have you on here. I, I had a realization right before we started recording that you are the first franchisee that we've actually had on the podcast. Okay, that's amazing. <laughs> <laughs> so I'm just, I'm so glad you're here. And I'm so glad that um, you can be on the on the podcast because I think that our franchisees offer such a valuable, valuable insight, valuable part of Ellie. I don't know how to say that. That was very clunky. It brings a different perspective. You know, it's like our franchise owners are people who are not necessarily uh, clinicians or didn't dedicate their careers to mental Mm -hmm. health, but because of personal reasons, you know, there's something meaningful about mental health. Uh, Some aspect of mental health has touched their lives in a significant way. And so they're, they're passionate about using their business success and expertise to bring mental health into their communities. Absolutely. So we wanted to have you on here to talk a little bit more and continue our conversation about suicide prevention awareness because September is Suicide Prevention Awareness Month. And the timing just worked out perfectly. You had reached out to me and you said, I I need to talk to you about my story. I want to talk to you about why I became a franchisee because it's so timely and so so vital to, to this month. And so I was hoping that we could have you on here. You could share a little bit about your story and what motivated you to open an LA Mental Health in your community and just kind of have a conversation about suicide and the stigma that surrounds it and how how important finding preventative care and family support is for, for families that are walking through um, suicide loss as well as people who are struggling with suicide or suicidal thoughts. So... Do you want to go ahead and kind of share a little bit about your own story and what what brought you to open an Ellie? Um, so it's it's such an interesting journey for me. Um, I, you know, last year um, we had a lot of life experiences that brought mental health very very close to um, our lives, um, both with um, my sister and my kids, um, and even some extended family. So we were knee deep into understanding mental health and um, finding help for um, our children who um, were showing signs of uh, mental health issues. And so we were, this is like, gosh, post-pandemic, right? So kind of hit us really, really hard. And so while we were doing that, you know, going through all the research and reading and finding out what the different mental illnesses are and 
how do we help um, our our loved ones uh, finding therapists, you know, going for psychiatrist appointments and and just going through the system um, here. This opportunity with LE Mental Health Franchising came um, into my path. And so my husband and I, we sort of looked at each other and said, uh, this is this is a sign, like we have to do this. We have to do something to help change the system, to help, you know, give access to mental health to everyone, not just those who can afford it out of pocket. Uh, I could, uh, I was, um, my husband and I are, I guess you could say lucky that we could afford it out of pocket. We, all the therapists we went to for our kids, uh, they don't, they didn't take insurance, right? So, um, you know, just learning about Ellie and what it's about and what Ellie is doing to change the mental health space um, and for us to have such a personal, you know, interest and, and uh, investment in it because of our, our family, we decided we had to do this. It wasn't really a choice. It was like, we have to do it. <laughs> so that's why we decided to invest in opening our own LE franchise. And honestly, I couldn't have found a better company to do it with because LE Mental Health just reflected everything, like all the core values reflected everything that I represented and and that I wanted to bring forward to my community. So so it's so, history, as they say. <laughs> yeah, so it sounds like your, your family was walking through kind of their own mental health struggles and you were finding it really difficult to to find accessible therapists in your community that took insurance. This is actually like a story that I hear from a lot of franchisees, just the the frustration of trying to find care and trying to uh, realizing that there's such a need in their communities and then feeling like they wanted to to bring it there to fill that need. And what I appreciate about what you shared was it's like you found your family therapist. You got your family mm-hmm. care, but you knew how difficult it was and how much of it was a product of your financial situation, you know, which you knew did not generalize across other families in your community. Mm-hmm. And so your concern was more so for them. You know, you knew what it was like to be able to have access to that. You knew that other people didn't. And so you wanted to do something. Uh, to eliminate a lot of those barriers that other families would have likely faced. That that is exactly exactly right. Yeah, and the other thing was that my sister had, um, you know, just to share something very very personal is she, um, you know, right right at the time uh, we had uh, signed and ready to, you know, go forward with this journey. She knew about it. She knew what we were doing and uh, she was excited for us. Um, And, um, you know, the year before she had um, attempted suicide. So uh, she really, and, and she survived, which is a huge, I don't know how to say it, but it, it was a blessing because we learned so much from her survival. 
from everything that she was able to learn from her diagnosis. So one of the things that brought us to the purpose of uh, opening our own clinic was not just the accessibility, but, you know, access to mental health care, but the early intervention. So we wanted to, and, you know, we, one of our goals is to get into the school system and really bring mental health to, to kids. Uh, Because I have experienced it firsthand where my sister didn't get the help she should have gotten when she was a teenager. And so fast forward at the age of 38, she really did suffer a lot. Uh, The pandemic made it worse. And, um, you know, when she did get diagnosed correctly, um, it was already late. She was already in the hospital, you know, seeing a psychiatrist. So we want, so what Ellie was about is, you know, the, the bottom tier, right? Get the, get get them help when it's, when they were at the bottom of that pyramid, not at the top. So that was really a driver for me is, and then seeing my kids who within a year showed so much improvement in their uh, coping mechanism of, of their mental health, that just spoke volumes to how, Yes, I have experienced it, experienced it firsthand when you do get help uh, early and when you don't. So I had the stark difference in my own life. And so you're, you're seeing changes. You're seeing things look different and you're experiencing the impact of early intervention, which is more so of what you experienced in your children's generation of the family. Um you know, when, when, well, maybe I'll just, where would you say you're at with, with your sister and your grief and your loss? And because we spoke about this a year, about a year ago, I remember um, when it was more, I mean, much more raw. Um, how, where would you say you're at now? Yes, um, we did. It was, it was very, very raw at the time. Um, you know, she, uh, she died by suicide December of last year. And, um, you know, I, I feel like if it wasn't for Ellie, um, I'm not sure how I would have channeled the, the pain and the grief. Um, three months, you know, aftermath, that's all that kept me going was, was Ellie. Um, and also to see that my parents make sure that they could, they could recover and go back to their life uh, as normal as, or I guess the new normal. That was my goal. But yeah, Ellie was what kept me going. Uh, and I'm, I'm saying that with the utmost sincerity and, and like there's nothing truer than that because I was able to channel all of that on this is what I have to do. This is, this is in honor of my sister and in her memory uh, especially because she was never quiet about mental illness, mental health, um, mental health services, health care, um, uh, uh, mental health care, and also med management, all of those things. She uh, firsthand would talk about it with anybody who would listen. So the Ellie, Ellie is what really helped me to sort of process that 
Um, I did, I did of course have, you know, my own therapist that I was going to. So that does, that definitely helped. And then of course, family, um, helped as well. But, um, I'm in a, I'm at a place now where yes, I do grief. Uh, but I feel like, um, Ellie mental health, this, this, this is really going to be my, my mission and my purpose. And, and I feel like my sister is sort of working through me, you know, through all the challenges of this, of uh, the journey, you know? Um, and it's, it's, it's been, it's been truly amazing. Like, I don't know if whoever listens believes in, in that, but I feel like she's working with me <laughs> through the universe, <laughs> the way that everything is mm-hmm. working out, you know? So earlier when, when you and I were talking, you were sharing a little bit about um, your family's story and and kind of how early intervention and, and getting some of some of those coping skills early on was so beneficial for your kids and your family. And then you've also shared with us a little bit about kind of your sister's struggle and how her struggle kind of coincided with you opening this mental health clinic. And could you share a little bit more about kind of her story and the timeline of you opening the Ellie while navigating this, this massive loss? Yeah, it was so interesting. Um, you know, she knew that we were opening an Ellie. Uh, the only thing she said to me was, be careful. It's a lot of money. (laughs) She said, but, uh, you know, of course that was her practical side kicking in. Um, she, you know, she was going through, uh, the therapy that she needed, uh, she lived in Canada, so the system is a little different there. Um, good or bad, I don't know, but you know, she uh, got therapy wherever she could because the one therapy that she did need was dialectical behavioral therapy, mm-hmm. and uh, those uh, waiting lists were really, really long. So she, uh, honestly, I will tell you, she tried everything that she possibly could. Um, she was not liking the medication because after you come out of the hospital, they give you some very, very strong meds. Um, So she was really struggling with that, uh, weaning off and taking new meds and um, a lot of loopholes in the system, um, health system with with medication Um, and even the right therapy. Like even if she had a social worker, she had a, you know, therapist that she was going to and she had a psychiatrist uh, they were not really talking to each other, coordinating any of this. She had to coordinate all of it, being the patient herself, which that still blows my mind today how that works. But um, mm-hmm. she she tried. She was doing her best. She even did holistic uh, borderline personality disorder, um, you know, holistic um, therapy and all, all, all those things. Um, so she you know, just, just, just knowing that she was trying everything that she possibly could, just knowing that, you know, as we were going through the whole journey of, of, um, our opening our Ellie, um, it, it just sort of, uh, and then she was there every step of the way on my son's mental health issues. And then when my daughter was starting to show signs, she was there every step of the way she was there. She was sending us information. She was, um, you know, so not a, while she was working on her own mental health, she was also helping us, you know. And um, so, yeah, she was an amazing human being. 
um, yeah, but I guess um, she just couldn't, she couldn't continue mm-hmm. living in that pain. That was the thing. But um, she was, she was there to see that how her nephew got so much better, like 180 degree turn um, in getting the help that he needed. So she did witness that, which is a blessing. And when did she pass away? She passed away in December, December 17th, uh, just before Christmas. Thinking about what she went through to get care and thinking about, mm-hmm. um, I mean, even just being diagnosed, finding finding a diagnosis that made sense to her at such a, so so late in life too. I mean, that just, it makes it, harder to, um, to really navigate the system or really kind of build some of those, those skills. But I guess one of the things that I'm, I'm curious about is when she was going through these different treatments or when she was hospitalized, how, how much did you know about that at the time? How, how involved was your family? Because you talk about how, like for your, with your son, there was a lot of family support and I'm wondering like how, how much she involved you guys in that? Yeah, that's a really good question. Um, before she attempted suicide, uh, she really didn't talk about her, you know, all the, all the pain she was going through. She didn't talk about it much. We knew that she, she had, uh, some level of depression. So she was, going to therapy and she was taking depression meds and that's all we knew. Mm -hmm. Um, you know, there was no, um, talk about suicidal thoughts or, or anything like that. And, and so, um, when, you know, I got to know from my son's school counselor that he had checked quite a few boxes and suicidal thoughts was one of them. I didn't even know what to think. I didn't, I didn't, I had no idea. I was like, first thing was like, I must be the worst parent alive. You know, that that's, that's how parents think because they don't know and they don't have the knowledge. Mm-hmm. And, and so this was pre pandemic. And, and so, you know, my sister really didn't share uh, how she was really feeling. And, and she told me later, um, like after she survived her first attempt was that, she didn't because she didn't think we would understand. And, and which is true because we wouldn't, we wouldn't have under, uh, understood at that time. Uh, and, and, but, but had she maybe thought about educating us, but, you know, at, at that time, she didn't think it was going to be like life-threatening, right? Her suicidal thoughts. Um, it, it was only during the pandemic, during the isolation that she, got to that level of suicidal, um, ideation, you know? So, uh, it, it was kind of like when my son, I got to hear that. And then he went through the, uh, lockdown and all of that. And he seemed fine. Uh, but then, you know, uh, when we were starting to open up after the pandemic, uh, it, we could really see that he was not fine. And, and, and that was about a month before I got the phone call that my sister's in the hospital because she attempted suicide. So literally it was like, you know, the timeline was just, yeah. So it just all happened at the same time. And then 
it's like you know your universe just forcing you to like you better know what this is what's going on uh, and then that's when we learned so much about suicidal thoughts and all of that and and how my sister honestly if she had gotten her diagnosis of borderline personality disorder even in her early 20s it would be a very different story now i think uh, but she was 38 when she got diagnosed right and so that's hard and bpd is one of the uh, most psychologically painful mental illnesses and so it was really hard and she knew that she knew that she would never really be all the way i guess cured if you will but she kind of knew that she she told me that so um So yeah, it was that was kind of the time. Providers were communicating to her that that it wasn't curable, you know, that mm-hmm. she'd be forever, you know, kind of stuck in this place of at least having components of pain from mm-hmm. the borderline personality disorder. Was that communicated to her by professionals or is that a conclusion that she came to? No, it was so when she uh was in the hospital uh on an attempted suicide, they assigned a psychiatrist And so that was the time when the psychiatrist uh called me as the closest family member and we uh, and we had a conversation where he asked me to describe my sister since I'm closest to her and he sort of matched up the symptoms I I was just talk I didn't know anything about it I was just talking about what I've observed about my mm-hmm. sister through the many years of her adulthood and and so he just matched it up and he said you know this is what she has she does have major depressive disorder but she also has borderline uh personality disorder and he went through the symptoms and it was just like all these dots connecting in my head because i there were so many things i couldn't really have answers to as as uh, you know we were Uh, growing i mean as adults i there were things that happened you know it would between us between our families and that i just couldn't you know i couldn't make sense of it until that diagnosis happened and everything sort of connected all the dots connected and it all made sense mm-hmm. so that's why i said it was kind of a blessing that she got it but it was also too late mm-hmm. when she got the right diagnosis when she got that diagnosis was it I think for a lot of people when they receive a diagnosis especially if they've been struggling for a long time it can be helpful to finally have like a name or or it can help normalize some of the symptoms or things that they're going through but for others it can it it can feel like you're trapped and you're never going to get out of it. I'm do you have a sense for if receiving that diagnosis was helpful for your sister at the time or if it um if it provided some way of like normalizing what she had been going through yeah i i i i that's a really good question i i don't know if it was good for her or bad for her but what i've heard from just you know her and then from other friends that i talked to later on she was she did have a sense of relief to know what it was that you know made her feel all these different emotions because as a bp as a patient of bpd it's it's 
it's a lot of emotions, right? Um, and and she wasn't sure how to think about that, um, how to think about some of her closer closest relationships sort of failing, uh, you know, not being. And you know, you always feel that sense of failure until she got this diagnosis and then she was like, okay, this is a relief. Mm-hmm. It's not but just I think me. After, yeah. And then after that though, I think she did go through that realization that I don't know if I can ever get better. Like it's so hard. It's so hard to change my thinking because this is how I've been thinking for the last 25 years of my adult life. I heard that. I listened to her and I said, I, I understand. And I, I don't know what to say. Like, honestly, like, what do you say? You know, it's like a cancer patient that says, I tried everything and I only got diagnosed with this tumor last, you know, now when I had this tumor for so many years, like, what do you say? You know, um, yeah, it's, it's a, it's the hard, hard truth that, she was diagnosed very late in her life. And, and that's why I am, my husband and I are all about early inf- intervention, early intervention, see the signs, understand, seek help, because you can save lives. When we did our, the last episode we did on this topic, one of the things we talked about was the role that meaning plays in the grief process and acknowledging that it's a tricky one, you know, but seeing that you're kind of deeper into your process of grief and that Ellie was already, you know, something that was part of your life, you know, investing in that meaning seems to have been a terribly useful resource for you to put that energy in as you continue to process your grief. And so beyond meaning, what are some things you haven't mentioned yet that you would say this experience has taught you that you would like to share with people and that you want other people to know? You know, as someone who is not um, the one who's suffering, someone who is um, seeing it uh, from the outside and uh, seeing my loved ones suffer, uh, for those that are like me, um, you know, they ha- I feel like the message I have is do whatever you can to, to help your loved one to get the help they need. Um, easier said than done. I totally understand that. I had a tough time with my teenager. You know, he didn't want to take medication. So it was a challenge to get him to a psychiatrist. But he did finally agree. Um, yeah, that's that's the biggest thing that I learned is uh, mental health is something that needs to be treated, diagnosed and treated. It's like any physiological health issue. And it's, it's something that's, and that's the whole reason, like, you know, stopping the stigma and, uh, just breaking away from that, you know, um, recently I, I met a, an acquaintance in our community who, lost her husband to suicide and it was more situational depression. And she was telling me how he was stark 
directly against, just against any type of counseling, therapy, psychiatry, psychiatry. And this is because in our communities, in our culture, it's there's so much stigma around it, you know, and, and that's why he didn't want to. Um, ultimately, he died by suicide. But that's that's our number one goal, our mission, right? The message is, yes, absolutely break the stigma and talk about it. If someone can talk about cancer or, you know, how they survived cancer, how their loved one survived cancer, then you can definitely talk about how your loved one survived mental health issues. And I tell my son this all the time. You know, he he has this, he's 17 and he has this moments where he's like, oh, I feel like I haven't accomplished anything, you know, and, and I just put the mirror in front of him. And I said, let me tell you that you survived depression. Mm -hmm. (laughs) That is, that's like saying, you know, someone who's, who uh, recovered from cancer saying, oh, I feel like I wasted my life. I haven't done anything. No, you are recovering from an illness. And that's the same lens that you should be looking at it through, right? Even if it's mental health, it's, it's still an illness that you have to treat and, and uh, recover from and, and, and look at what you've done. Look at how you've changed your life um, around, you know. So that's, that's my message to people is truly talk about it and break the stigma and, and get the people that you love um, and you know the help that you can. Yeah, and take it seriously or take it as seriously as we take physical health conditions. Mm-hmm. You know, if I had a broken arm, I wouldn't exactly wait right. two weeks to go to the doctor. Mm-hmm. Yeah. You know, and the degree of urgency yeah. is, is it's exactly just as right. relevant. On that note too, like oftentimes you don't have to wait two weeks or seven weeks or 10 weeks to go see a, a doctor if you have a broken bone. And so I think that that's, that is where part of what I love about this franchise model is bringing more providers, bringing more mental health care to communities that don't have mental health care so that people don't have to wait so long to find care. Because I think that, gosh, it was either NAMI or another mental health organization that, that was talking about how the average wait time for people to find a therapist or get care is at least seven weeks. It's like, it was something, and that was virtual, in person, all of it. And I think that we see that number that is astronomically higher in most communities even. I mean- Yeah, it's an average. Exactly. Like it's, for some people, they'll wait on wait lists for months and months and months before they can see a therapist. And so I think that kind of going back to your point even before too, where increasing clinics, finding- more ways to become more accessible for people so they don't just have to find cash pay private practice therapists and and they can find people that take their insurance or they can find people that have a lower wait list you know things like that are is absolutely crucial to yeah. this conversation and and making sure that people can find the help that they need and not just suffer in silence or or suffer feeling like they you know, they're never going to, they're never going to be seen by a psychiatrist or a therapist. So I think the accessibility issues that we're seeing in this country, I mean, as well as in other countries too, is, is a big part of this, this issue. 
don't we don't have mental health urgent care. You know, we have emergency rooms, but to get a bed in an emergency room for mental health related reasons is a pretty high threshold. Um, and so there is a pretty big demographic that's getting missed where there is a sense of urgency, but the resources just aren't necessarily there. But in any case, there's still a difference between, you know, being stuck in that place of pain and having no sense of what's next for you and what's an option and being in that same place, mm-hmm. but knowing, you know, I have an appointment in seven weeks and 12 weeks, you know? And so even with that urgency, you know, it doesn't always necessarily mean getting them in front of a professional within 24 hours, but it does mean getting them an appointment with a professional scheduled maybe within 48 hours, mm-hmm. you know? So at least there's that sense of there's something ahead, mm-hmm. something I can hold on for, um, which can be critical. Well, and it can help you feel like you're not in this hopeless state. Like yeah. this is, yeah. you've got something coming that that will mm-hmm. be helpful. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I just wanted to to say too, how the loss of your sister and, and this journey that you've been on these last few years has, has made you such a fierce advocate for, for your family and for your community and for people that need mental health care. And I just, I really appreciate that about you, Saroni. And I, I really, I think that that's, that's so admirable. And, and you spoke even earlier too, about how you feel like your sister is kind of like walking through this with you. And she's like watching over you in a way. And I, I believe that too. I think that's so evident and, and it it absolutely has, affected kind of how you go about franchising, how you go about leading a team of therapists and, and, and growing your business. And yeah, I just, I, I really applaud that. And I think that I, yeah, I think your sister's watching out for you too. I love it. Yes. I think she is for sure. (laughs) What was your sister's name? Yeah. It was Shotomi. Shotomi Kundu. Shotomi. Shotomi. Yeah. Hmm. Yeah, she was an amazing human being. Yeah. Yes. Yeah, and I can sense that just through your spirit and how you talk about her and keep her alive <laughs> in the work you continue to do. Yeah, def- I mean, I, I just, you know, just to give you an idea, you know, we the celebration of life I had in Vancouver, 40 people showed up. Um, you know, the 40th birthday uh, that she, her, her the Bengali community, because we speak, our, our native language is Bengali. The Bengali community held in in Vancouver was fifty people. So, mm. and then each you know her workplace had a memorial, and and so it's it's just seeing the kind of impact she had on people's lives, um, from children to adults to elderly. It was amazing, um, and she, yeah, she was just she was an amazing human being. As are you. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> Thanks. Uh, thank you, Maren. Yeah, thank you so much for joining. Any other kind of last thoughts or or things that we want to kind of end with? Yeah, you know, I, I appreciate hearing from the perspective of a non clinician. You know, somebody who doesn't live their professional lives in this industry, but nonetheless, you know, understands the critical role it plays. You know, just in society and communities at large, and that you know, therapists can't do this alone. You know, and what I love about this franchise model and it's something I hope it continues to awaken and we see spread about in different circles, you know, outside of Ellie is 
you know, more folks like you who aren't clinicians or direct care providers, but you see the need and you do become that advocate. You know, you do become the person who plays the part in generating those resources, generating the awareness. And that's, that's yeah, that's going to play a big part in where we're all trying to get. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Thank you so much for joining and thank you guys for listening and we'll see you next week. Thank you. Thanks, everyone.